power is not just about me. It's also about us, right? And it changes. Like our coalitions change. But the most important thing I think about reading or understanding power is to understand what's the purpose of it. This is the strategy behind with Adam Cox, Yuta Tobias Mortlock and Matt Wilkinson. In this episode, we explore the strategy behind empowerment. What does it take to enable yourself and others to achieve greatness? The strategy behind empowerment. One of the biggest deficiencies in good leadership is actually learning to let go and understand that when leaders of not only businesses, but teams or families or any form of you know, social hierarchy or construct have to then kind of you know, pass the baby over to do important things. There is trust issues. There is capability issues. There are resource issues. But we all know in our hearts that empowerment is critical to actually move things forward because we cannot simply do everything. So this is going to be an interesting session, I think. The strategy behind empowerment. So what I'd like to do is I'll throw it to Matt to talk about empowerment and kind of just what, how do you view empowerment as a construct? Like where do you start when you think about either empowering yourself or others? That's a really, really good question. And for me, if I'm looking at empowering myself, it's a fairly simple task because I'm the only one involved. And for empowering myself, I have to separate what I can control from what I can't control. Once I've looked at what I can control and I have influence over, essentially I have authority because it's my own actions to do whatever I like with those things that I control. So whether it's making a choice about, do I spend something today? You know, I go to the shops, am I empowered to make that decision to spend on the credit card or not? Yes. Can I, if I'm going to the credit, you know, if I've got credit available, do I go and spend a huge amount of money or not? You know, I'm, I have, I'm empowered and I have the authority to make that decision. And I know I also have the accountability to pay that money back. If I've got myself into a huge amount of debt or not, when it comes to, businesses and within organizations i think it gets a bit more complicated because obviously there are more than one person involved and you know i did a little bit of uh, desk research before we started and i came across four key elements to that people need to have to really be empowered the first of those is authority so for you to be empowered to do something you have to have the authority to make the decisions about that project that thing that you're being asked to be empowered about you have to be accountable for it you have to have the resources that you need to be able to deliver the task that you're being asked to deliver and you have to be given the information you need to make the right decisions you have to be privy to those conversations one of the things that i think one of the places I think organizations really fall down with is separating the authority and the accountability. And I know we're going to talk about this quite a lot, where essentially the accountability for a task gets pushed down the chain to somebody that is delivering the task. But actually the authority and a lot of the decision making is actually held at a high level. One of the things that I, one of the tools I think that facilitates this is actually one of the tools that project managers use to try to avoid this challenge, which is kind of a racy chart where they look at who's responsible, the person that's doing the task, 
who's accountable for it. This is often the project sponsor or really the person whose head should roll if the project doesn't deliver. Um, and then you've got the people that are consult that need to be consulted about the project and the subject matter experts that are going to be impacted. And then you've got the people that just need to be informed, the general stakeholders. Maybe these are the people that will have some slight impact on what's going on, but they don't really need to be too involved. You don't need to waste their time in every single meeting. One of the challenges, I think, is because the acronym starts with responsibility rather than accountability. And I think, actually, if you could switch it round to Archie, where you start with <laughs> the accountability at the top and then you push to the responsibility of whose task is it to get things done, that actually would actually start shifting the mindset and start matching up more with hierarchical structures. And I think as we start moving forward through this conversation, the, sh the, the challenge is, is often that you've got the people that are making those, t you know, being put in a position of making something happen, don't always have the authority to make that happen. I remember working for a, um, yeah, a boss who, uh, who could never understand why it was more difficult for me to get things done than it was for him. And of course, I had to rely on scratching other people's backs for them to do tasks for me, whereas he could use his position in the leadership team to simply get them to do it. And of course, when you're working as a peer or as a you know, superior in an organisation, that makes a huge difference in organisations because all of a sudden it becomes that, how am I going to manage my time? Whose requests do I prioritise? Especially when organisations are trying to move forward on multiple fronts. Um, but that's kind of a very personal side of a story there and i'd really be um keen to explore the impacts of how uh separating authority from the right level of accountability really impacts the psyche and i'm sure yetta's uh, lifting her head there because uh, she knows i'm going to throw this one to her <laughs> um i'm i'm excited and fascinated by this and uh, matt uh, i think we'll it'll take us a while to unpack what you've just set us up for, but I love it. Um, I'd like to step back a little bit uh, in the game of authority and empowerment and getting things done or feeling like you're getting things done. Because I'd like to step back to power. Because I think if we don't understand power, we don't know how to change it and then empower somebody else. And you've just said it, Matt. I think... Um, Power is about, you know, doing what you want to do or getting, getting what you want to get or getting somebody else to do what you want to do. So it's a bit to do with authority. It's a bit to do with leadership. Um, so if we say leadership is getting other people to do what you want to do, there's a lot of connections to it. And the other thing that I really want to start with to get us to think about how slippery power and empowerment is and how distinct it is from leadership is that power um uh, somebody in psychology said i think it was adam galinsky he said um power gets you to resist influence so if you feel powerful you actually resist the influence of others so it protects you from being influenced against your will um so the more power you have, the less pressure you have to conform. And that's what I think what your, your boss, Matt, didn't even realize, that he had power. He didn't even have 
the pressure to conform or to do things to try to influence other people and you didn't realize how much effort it is for you to influence others because you didn't have as much power as him. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think the distinction between power and leadership is that um, power is fluid and it is more fluid than we think. It's, you know, it's not God-given that somebody has power or somebody is a leader forever. But power begets power. So power is a bit, um, it amplifies. So that's where it's different from leadership. Because leadership can move, it can stay with somebody. But feeling empowered makes me more powerful. And feeling disempowered amplifies as I have more experiences of feeling disempowered. Does that make sense? So the distinction of the fluidity of power and empowerment to other stuff like leadership or respect or you know other things with, with or motivation that we're talking about is um, power is and I have a I have a a prop here for you. Ooh. Power is like this. Can you see this? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's yep. a bit like a raw plug. So mm-hmm. it has a, what do you call these things that are that are kind of sticky that when you Pull, when you drill them in, they resist being pulled out. What do, what are these guys called? Resistance things, you know. Yeah. You're yeah, talking to the, you're talking to people talking. with very soft palms who have never done manual labor in yeah. their lives. So basically, this. <laughs> thing I don't know. I use them. I've just never known what the what the. So the, they, the you know, they resist. Drummers and stoppers. You know, you, you stick. So power becomes stronger the more you apply it, and then. You kind of mm-hmm. you can't really unplug it as easily, and when people don't have power, it's quite difficult to get them oh. to feel like they actually can take it or they can, you know, start having it. And so, therefore, I'm saying, power and and changing power needs to work much more carefully than just saying, you know, I transfer authority over to you, I give mm. you resources, I give you information. There's a, it's a lot more psychological yeah, than yeah. other things in your Archie model. Yeah. Is that, and, and, so is that why it's so difficult for... And sorry, I'm kind of going off a bit topic here, but is that why it's often so difficult for somebody who is um, promoted out of a team to be the manager of the team? Because actually they, they were taking orders at one point and all mm-hmm. of a sudden they've got to give them. Obviously, it's a group of peers. Whereas, you know, if they're in that same team, whereas actually if they go to another group or organization mm. they already have that you know they feel that they have that team because it's a different set of learning about power mm. and just to add on to that it's because that was almost verbatim my question but a slightly different slant on so that's why i'm kind of piling on to yours which is if power resists influence mm-hmm. what is needed for the influencer to change his or her position to be empowered. Yeah. And when I was thinking about this ahead of our session, I went back to, you know, even manipulating power. So empowering people means you're manipulating it, you're changing it, right? And super simple steps involved in, you know, you know, malleing, like moving power around are you first need to read it. You need to understand it. It's a bit to do with politics, right? 
like we might not like power, we might not like politics and organization, but we need to understand it and we need to map it. I, I've sometimes done this with um, people that I've got them to draw a power map, not a social network map, but it's like a, a map of who has power, who has more power, who has less power, who wants power. Um, where are the coalitions? Where are the power coalitions? And you can effectively cluster people because like Matt said, power is not just about me. It's also about us, right? And it changes. Like our coalitions change. But the most important thing I think about reading or understanding power is to understand what's the purpose of it. Is it, you know, pro-self or is it pro-social? Is it something that is attractive so you can start sharing? Or is it something that it, that inherently is actually something that only improves the life of the, the, the guy or the gal who has it? And if we don't understand that, I don't think we can change it. I don't think we can give somebody else power if, if we don't really understand, you know, how somebody exerts power in the first place. Okay, so let me kind of just burrow Come into back. that one for a moment so if we look at particularly in the last half a decade the rise of influences particularly in social media and these good guys girls um wield all sorts of power particularly economically socially um is at what point in time does influ like if power resists influence is it not mm. also a case that power can leverage influence or like it, it, it's it like a loop at some point in time where you become, you know, if power resists influence at some point in time, influences loops back and becomes powerful. So it becomes a cycle of, of power it. and influence depending on where you position. So it's, it, it's, it, it feels like it's a cycle that is fluid and you can move through or social trends can move through or leadership can move through because power is, ultimately transferable and power is quite often not infinite uh many people in history have tried um i, I haven't, haven't seen an empire rise to the top and stay at the top and not fall yet yeah we'll see where we go in the next couple hundred years um but it's it's uh, I'm, I'm just i think i'm tapping into the concept of influence becoming power and the loop back because you're absolutely right. If we can kind of understand the drivers of power and how we transfer that by empowering others equally, like, you know, the, the what am I trying to say? It's your point about power mapping, like in organizations and in sales and all sorts of things, influence mapping. Who is the most influential person in the organization? I remember a quick story. A couple of years ago, I was in a very large organization and uh, we went through an influence mapping uh, exercise to really understood where the highest point of influence sat. And everyone was doing all of this influence mapping with all these leaders and the big hot shots of the organization. Uh, and that was great. And then myself and a couple of others did a whole different piece of research. Long story short, we found out that the most influential person in the organization was a woman by the name of Rachel. And Rachel was the personal assistant to the chief executive. Mm -hmm. And the only, not the only reason, but one of the primary reasons or contributing factors as to why Rachel was the most influential person in the organization is one, the chief executive meetings always ran over. 
So he was always late for the next appointment. So someone would come in, hi, look, I've got a meeting with the chief executive. Uh, sit down, can I make you a coffee? Here's a paper, great. Uh, chief executive runs 20 minutes over, half a minute over. Part two, contributing factor, is um, Rachel had what we term in the industry as a big mouth. And she loved to talk. And she'd be like, hey, what are you doing? And then as soon as someone would kind of sit there and understand that Rachel's a little bit loose-lipped, ask a couple of questions, information would come out, and then suddenly the people who are meeting the chief executive could get ahead of the narrative of where the organization was going, uh, different promotions and succession plans and all sorts of stuff. So Rachel knew everything. Rachel liked talking, but she only got to talk to specific people who managed to get in the CEO's diary and the CEO ran over. So it created the environment for Rachel to become the most influential person in the organization. I remember presenting this back at the organization and the chief executive was mouth agape. It's just like, what? And I'm like, yeah, mate, you've got to work this out. Like you've got this wonderful dynamic here where uh, your right hand has actually got more power than you. And notice the word power. That was the transfer where Rachel became from the influence mapping to owning power. Now, whether she knew it or whether she had the authority or the accountability, she had power. And that is, I think, where my thinking is going in relation to the loop back. So one is here as a leader trying to empower people to achieve a particular objective, and we'll get to the mechanics of that. But then it's also, it definitely swings back where the empowered can lead the power. Mm -hmm. I really love this cycle of power and influence, and I think we need to really unpack this. And um, Mm. that also reminds me of the fact that you can use power for good or for evil. You know, Rachel could use this power in the interest, pro-social interest of the organization, or other people could use their their understanding of power to manipulate Rachel. That's also mm-hmm. power. And, yeah. um, and the other thing that I just love and I want to throw in that I, I totally love it is um, somebody said, forget who it was. Oh, it was Eric, Eric... Uh, you, civic activist in the US, has a fantastic TED Talk on power. He said, power plus character means good citizen. So power itself, Ooh. without having character or integrity, becomes a neutral tool that you can use to manipulate, you know, pro-self, you know, um, demagogue, kind of tyrant kind of thing. But power plus character makes you into a good citizen. So... Can we talk about, you know, the difference between power and influence? And I think it's like power is the hard bit of influence. And, you know, soft power is influence. Hard power is physical power, right? You men have more physical power than us women. Um, You tend to also, in in patriarchal societies, have more status than women, right? It's just, it's just, it's also because power has a lot to do with, um, you know, authority, roles, social norms, right? So the social norm is maybe that the, the man uh, has the last decision. That's a, that's not in organizations typically, or maybe not nowadays that as much the case. But it goes from, you know, hard power is force, money, resources. And it then becomes softer by talking about rules. So rules make make you or me feel powerful or make an organization feel powerful if people buy into it. And then when a rule is more of a social norm, an unwritten rule, 
it moves more into the influence realm. So soft power is typically defined as influence, right? Soft power and diplomacy is attractiveness of ideas, attractiveness yeah. of people. And then, then we're becoming in, into empowerment because I will only really stop feeling disempowered when the idea that you're, you're bringing to me that I maybe should do on the project that you're working with me is an attractive idea, is an attractive concept. Mm. It's something that I want to get. And this is where social influences are so successful because they're attractive. Their identity yeah. is in line with who I want to be, what I value, what's important to me. Yeah. You touch on something really interesting, which is that from a leadership perspective, transferring the intention of empowering of, of empowering others into what that looks like. And I think the first step to that is a, a high level of self-awareness enough to stop myself, a leader, saying, you should do this this way. Because that is not empowering. That is an instruction. That's telling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if I'm using a hierarchical structure or, or any structure, basically, to think I'm empowering someone by giving them an instruction, mm. um, I'm defeating the purpose. I'm, yeah, there, there is no empowerment in this whatsoever. I am, I'm holding power because I'm telling this person, like Matt's boss, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, control, I control the resources, therefore I tell people to do it and it happens. But it's being self-aware to know I do control the resources, but I don't want to tell these people what to happen. I want to empower these people to work it out. Therefore, I'm either freeing up my own mental capacity or time to go and do something mm -hmm. of higher value or more important or whatever it happens to be. And I'm actually trusting, key word, the people who I'm looking to empower because they mm -hmm. will inherently stuff up at some point. And that's fine. And that's where what is the role of accountability in entrusting other people to do something when they get it wrong, like whose head rolls. So it's kind of like a trust risk trade-off within this kind of power cycle, this power influence cycle as well. That's another thing as well. I love the trust risk uh, trade-off. Mm -hmm. mm. mm. Well, I must admit, you know, we were talking about influence and power and, and how that spreads. And I know we touched on social networks, but you know, I went through uh, an exercise in one organization I worked and did map this out. It was a huge whiteboard exercise. So I did map out who do I, who, who, who has whose ear and who's the best person to, you know, if I can't get to that person easily, who do I need to get to, to make sure that the message is getting through that the, the right things are happening. And, and that exercise in itself actually was quite empowering. So all of a sudden you could say, right, I need this person, I need that person, I need to get this person. You become, you start feeling very Machiavellian actually, because you start understanding better where the power lies in the organization and therefore how you can, um, how you can influence the power flows and what is being said by the power. So if you make sure that somebody feels involved in something, uh, and then they say, hey, well, we did this great thing and this da, 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 this is really exciting. All of a sudden, and, they, and they, that passes to the person that you really need to, to, to have on your side. All of a sudden, those positive messages start coming through. 
and that message those messages then get elevated and you start finding that you can re-influence where your um your power sits um one of the key challenges we have with power is that and, and influence is knowing all of those connections that we don't see and being able to really understand how do I move from being in this scenario here to one where I've actually managed to re-empower myself. Um, and I think something that, that you mentioned earlier, uh, Yeto really comes into that, is that when people don't have power, it's difficult for them to take it back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you have to do that really, really slowly and gently, and they have to want that. And actually in organisations where um, where people don't feel empowered, it's really hard to convince them that it's something that they actually want, that it's something that's beneficial mm-hmm. because they're used to having being held accountable for something that they actually have no authority over. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of, uh, about this almost from a developmental perspective because you just said, how do you convince somebody to take power back when they've never felt power? powerful in the first place you know it's absolutely possible nowadays that you are working in organizations with young people who feel lucky that they're there especially in this day and age feel lucky that they have a job in an organization learning the ropes but they don't feel like they are empowered to get things done to do what they want to do because there are so many unwritten rules there are so many structures ahead of them they don't feel what it feels like to resist inf- being influenced, to have their own backbone, right? Um, and we are such learning machines and we're such social animals, as we've talked about so many times before. We, we check on the cues, right, about other people, whether we are, we are straying from what we ought to do or not ought to do. So we learn very quickly that standing up might actually be frowned upon if we don't even have a taste of it in the first place. Mm. Um, And I think that's why I would love for us to consider power much more as a social collectivist construct than we typically talk about it. Just like leadership, I think we should talk about it as much more of a a thing that moves between people and that could be shared by people than as something like a baton that I have to hand over to you because it's not true. It's absolutely not true anymore in the the 21st century that power can be concentrated in one person, the C-suite, you know, the upper echelon of an organization, because it's actually much more of a shape-shifter and a thing that is not a property or a characteristic of a person or a group. And that's when we can start talking about power and empowerment as something that we debate as a fluid idea. Then it also becomes less scary for somebody who feels maybe less empowered to try and get a taste of it. If it's not something that is rigid and static, Adam. Or it can become incredibly scary. Like we're recording this in what, September 2020. Belarus, United States, Hong Kong. Like there are power dynamics at play right now. And the rigidity is, you know, people are knocking on the doors of Lukashenko, right? Correct. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. They have the baton of power. And it's maybe that is the downfall in relation to a mental construct that is driving what we're seeing in different parts of the world politically and socially at the moment is that, no, power is a baton. 
and it is mine. And to hell with you if you think you're coming after me, because it's not yours to have. And then you have this tension, and then you have influence rising on those who are challenging Mm. power, and then suddenly power shifts. So power is fluid, I 100% agree. But it's, it's those who resist the change. Now, whether I'm letting go of power and I don't want to because it's being taken away mm. from me and I'll kick and scream and throw my toys out of the pram. Or alternatively, it's the, oh, my God, I'm now getting this double promotion and I'm the head of this department, which is the biggest P&L line, and I don't know what I'm doing because I'm just an engineer or whatever. You know, it, it, there is this... I don't want this or I don't mm. want to let this go. So you can be drunk on power and you can equally be drunk on not power mm. because you're leaving a beautiful life and life is simple and you don't need like this. How many people do we know collectively who are amazing at their job and have said no to promotions because they know the promotion would be up into something they simply do not want either. I'm not going to take on all this extra work for no more money I don't want to do this. I quite like my life. Thank you. Or any other kind of metric Mm. that then comes in that affects outside in the context I'm making, I'm putting this forward in an organizational workflow perspective. Um, You know, power isn't always the desirable gift. So we need to be careful when we look to empowering others. I think we need to respect the people who simply don't want it. And they're happy worker bees and and that is their role and they are content with that because they have other priorities in life outside of workplace. Mm. Raising a family, going on holidays, leaving at five and going to the gym or whatever it is. Not all of us want to necessarily be in the office mm. till 10 to midnight. Yeah. I've just listened to a really beautiful podcast uh, last Monday morning start of the week on BBC on the Radio 4 with Michael Sandel and an amazing Turkish-British feminist uh, writer. I forget what her name was. Uh, and Michael Sandel and this uh, f- feminist writer were talking about power. And, and I'm bringing the raw plug back because they were saying it is not good enough to say that some people want you know, power. Some people want uh, political um, influence and others don't. For example, in, in a patriarchal society, this is the feminist argument, but it's a really compelling argument. Guys, I'm not saying, you know, you men are all bad and I'm just because I'm a woman. Uh, I need you to listen to me. This, this woman was saying that it is so fickle and subtle to ask a woman who has a job and does the household whether she wants to keep raising the kids and maybe having a job that you know pays her part-time because it is so entrenched for me not to think that I can get myself out of this barb that is here you know that that I don't even think I have a choice to actually become a female leader in an organization so this is so entrenched and this is so subtle the empowerment or lack of empowerment you cannot even trust when people say i don't want a, 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 an important job with a public persona because so many of us don't even know what it feels like to live in a different universe and so okay. the word power yeah. is a you know it's so subtle so i'm, I'm only i'm only going on to a hobby horse here mm. because i think we cannot even trust the disempowered if they say, I'm cool, I'm cool, mm. you guys do this, you know, um, so many black American women currently say, I don't care about voting, I, 
and I have talked to so many black American women who said, my vote doesn't make any difference anyway in the US now. But is this really true that they don't want to vote? No, it's, it's not. Um, of additional disillusionment. And I think... And I think if you go to, I mean, I think the perfect example of, of this power shifting and people taking back control was probably the early 2010s with the Arab Spring, where you had people very rigidly holding on to the batons of power. You know, you had leaders across, you know, across, the, across the Arab world rigidly holding on to power um, and not doing so in the, necessarily in the best interests of all of their people. Um, and I think that when, when that happens, obviously you get resentment, you get, you start, you know, you start seeing that there were social media influencers that started building um, protest movements and those protest movements were shut down because the, I believe, because the people in power were scared of losing the battle on the power. And so what happens is, is then you get this smaller group of people with the power and the larger group of the population that say, we want it. We want change. We want to do something about this. They empower themselves. They start breaking the rules. And I think that we, someone mentioned earlier about power and rules being coming together. And I think also people, when they start breaking the rules, they take power. And it's a, it's unpleasant and it's nasty. And you're seeing that around the world in various places as well, where there is this fight because all of a sudden the rules, the um, the the power structures are being ignored and all of a sudden you get that conflict and people are empowering themselves against where the power has historically resided and then all of a sudden you get the you know governments collapsing and you start seeing often uh chaos forming instead of uh, a relatively peaceful transition of power so you can you know if, i think if you're willing to allow power to move you'll see relatively peaceful shifts of power. You'll see structure retained. But when you have to, when it has to be taken by force from somebody, the power structures are broken and chaos then reigns. And I think you see that in organisations and I think you see that in countries. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Strategy Behind. What you say makes so much sense to me, and it's in line with you know the social psychology of how do you change power structures, how do you do it well, is once you understand where the power lies, you then invite conflict, you invite debate, and it it's all based on an understanding that power is something that is a property of the many, not a property of the few, and if you if you see in your mind that power is a property of the many, it becomes something that's debatable, as I would like to say in, in Adam's accent. I was going to say, I was it's deep in thought there and I heard of the best Australian accent I've heard in a couple of weeks. <laughs> debatable, um, disputable. You know, we are allowed to have discussions about who has power. How can that person share power? So, the you know, the two-step process of changing power structures is... You understand it. You understand almost the purpose as well. Is it for good or for evil? And then you invite conflict discussions. You invite um, debates about where should the power go? What is fair? What is not fair? And then, Matt, what you've just talked about becomes much less likely. 
then we can actually give power, make it bigger, share it, make it grow. But if we don't see it as something that's a property of us rather than, and it's, and I lose something by giving it to you, it becomes something that you then forcefully take of me and I have to forcefully take it back of you if I'm not allowed to, or if we're not, mm. if we're not trained to debate it. And um, I've mentioned the wonderful example of empowerment of U.S. prison inmates, uh, the Lancy Street Foundation in San Francisco and now like across the U.S. This is the textbook of empowerment. How do you empower people? You give them a vision that, you know, there is, it's possible for you to be a part of society. And then you institutionalize debate. So they take responsibility for each other. This is the each one teach one principle that, mm -hmm. you know, in order for you to feel empowered, like slaves who were not allowed to get education, as soon as a slave learned something, it was the duty of the person in enslavement to teach what they knew to another slave. And so people in, in this former prison inmates in the Delancey Street Foundation, are it's their duty to be responsible for somebody else and... It's their duty to talk it out. They literally call it talk it out every Tuesday or so. They have these talking it out circles, yeah. just like us. We're talking it out too, right? Um, and that's why we are an example of sharing power and of handing over the baton because we're okay to be criticized. We're okay to have a debate about something. That's mm. how power becomes something that is soft and not scary. And not yeah. an, a weapon of war, Adam. So, this, this is brilliant. So, is it fair to say that empowerment is predicated on three things? Self-awareness. Mm. Ambition. And psychological safety. <laughs> We keep on coming back to fundamentals here, aren't we? Yeah. These are yeah. fundamental things. Self-awareness, motivation, we've talked about it last time, mm -hmm. and then psychological safety, which is in the space between me and you. Right? Mm. Because with, with those three things, it feels like that is the recipe in which empowerment can move freely, cannot be turned into a power struggle. Mm -hmm. it will enable good things to happen because there is no fear of retribution if something wrong happens. You know, we all have our own views of reality. And if there is a delta and a difference between the reality, between what I see and what you see, and I act differently to the, how you would react and this affects you, I'm not going to be off with my head because I've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. You empowered me to make this decision. And I made the decision because you trusted me and I trusted and I respected the power that you gave me to go off and make the decision I made. Mm. And if we disagree, we can talk it out. We can, we have that psychological safety. I know it's not the end of my career. So there is this construct, I think where it's self-awareness, ambition and safety in kind of a little Venn diagram, if you will, that I think based on where we are at the moment in this conversation, feels like the recipe that allows for a leader to empower others in a beneficial way where you don't end up with power 
struggle dynamics hijacking what ultimately is a relatively good initiative. You know, I really like that. And I thought you had initially said, you know, self-awareness, motivation and psych safety. And now you're saying ambition. And I don't know what you think, Matt. I think ambition rings true to me as the second element. I think they're probably interchangeable here. Okay. Well, you have to have the ambition and the motivation to to use them. Um, but but something that's that this and and something you said earlier yet it kind of bring makes me think of is that you know we're talking about almost preserving a power structure through these things mm-hmm. and you know if I if I, if I dial dial this back down to the fact that we're all human beings the only reason that any power exists anywhere is that. Somewhere in my psyche is that I yield to other people or they yield to me. So we essentially give people power and we can take it away. We give, you know, when we walk into an organization with a hierarchy, we give power to the hierarchy. In many other states, we respect the boss, we respect the CEO, we respect, or even if we don't respect the person, we respect the office, you know. um, As a symbol. It's a symbol. And so we respect the symbols of power. Um, And I think with empowerment, and correct me if I'm wrong, if all of a sudden, if I'm the boss and I empower someone to make a decision, I empower somebody to be accountable, responsible for certain things, I'm actually building power. I'm building power structures. Uh, The power actually increases. Because there is a belief, because power is just really a belief. When we then look at power struggles, and you know, certainly you look at the take an example of the Arab Spring, Arab Spring, where the power structures fell. All of a sudden, you're actually destroying power, and so the power of anybody else holding any office decreases because all of a sudden. People believe that actually, if I disagree with you, I can do something about it, and I ha- I can empower myself to do that. So actually, in some ways, we absolutely we need to understand how to empower people if we want things to stay approximately within the same social norms that we have now. Um, whether that's within you know whatever size organization or, or group of people, yeah. To take that a step further, there is also, I think, a tipping point where it starts to swing against you. Let's look at, was it 89 and the collapse of the Soviet Union? Um, That was a power structure that absolutely fell apart. Um, However, the chaos that ensued afterwards, particularly in relation to the privatisation of state assets that were basically, you know, oligarchs, strong men, you know, I'm going to have the iron industry and you're going to have the coal industry and you're going to have the railway. And, you know, this cut up of, you know, it, it was, you know, the strongest person with the most bullets won. Yeah. Um, so I think taking your comments, Matt, and taking them a step further, there needs to be an awareness that if if structures are challenged, and, you know, I want to be boss or I want the double promotion or whatever it happens to be, and power dynamics are changing in the structure, there is a point where you can push it too far 
where it absolutely just becomes, you know, morally and in power terms bankrupt. Um, mm. And then it reforms without that discipline. Yeah, Yota, I can see you're jumping. I, I love uh, where you guys are going. And I, I actually think I'm now really hopeful and optimistic as I'm imagining what you guys are saying, you know, how it actually works. Because I think that the system is self-correcting. And I, I have so much faith that our system currently in 2020 is a system that's self-correcting. And let's talk about in, in early December if, if, if my hope <laughs> of the system self-correcting is actually true. Uh, and uh, Matt, I'm picking up on what you've just said about building power structures and creating structures where it's possible to increase power. It feels a bit to me like money because power is money. Mm. So, right, you guys in your, in your basic, you know, whenever you started uh, to study, understand, you know, uh, microeconomics, you understand that you can create money through money, right? So the, 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 I, I learned this in, in France, and I always remember that this professor, you, you could hardly understand him. And the only time we all understood him was when he was talking about la création monétaire. And then he was like, blah, blah, blah. and then he said, la création monétaire. And then we understood that you can make money. So like money doesn't exist and you can create it. So it's an, it's a, it's an abundance mindset. So I think we can create more power by sharing it more and giving mm -hmm. it more mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to more people. And Adam, the reason why I'm so hopeful towards the end of 2020 of being optimistic is um, uh, let's go to my dear, uh, sickeningly successful, um, you know, nominal uh, colleague, Adam Grant at Wharton, right? Who's one of the most yep. sickeningly successful social scientists, social psychologists. He says... It's not true to say power corrupts, but he says power reveals the character of the person. Isn't mm -hmm. that fun? Mm. So actually, over time, um, there's this, you know, somebody said, you know, if you want to find out who somebody is, give him power. So Adam Grant and his uh, research colleagues have demonstrated that you find out about the character of people when you give them little bits of power and then you, you check what actions they do. So in response to what you've mm. been saying, if somebody has a lot of power, it inherently, it can't be stable because more and more do we find out who they are. The more power they have, the more we see of what their character is. And then mm -hmm. in this increasingly transparent world, mm -hmm. in this increasingly connected world, an empowered world, fewer and fewer of us are, are switching off and are saying, I'm not going to vote. Mm. But does that, yeah, and, and I, that, that gives me, you know, brings me to sort of maybe a dystopian future perhaps. But it almost seems to me that power is, we are at a tipping point in many respects. And I think one of those tipping points is between the power of countries and the power of the big multinationals. So if you look at a you know, if you look at companies like Apple, Amazon, Google, or Alphabet, I should say, Microsoft, they are now even individually worth more than many, many countries are. So they have more money, therefore they have more power than entire populations. And if you look at the number of people that they're in those organizations, they actually those organizations become 
almost global countries, if you will. Um, and the power structures within them become almost more powerful than the than the countries in where they reside. And so at the moment we have a very, um, you know, a very sort of, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, um, uh, interesting dynamic where, you know, mm. you've, got, you've got Brexit happening. So, but the EU, the US have still have a sizable amount of power as organizations Companies that want to trade in those or in, and, and operate in those in those in those or you know geographic and economic areas want to you know have to abide by the rules. But you can see the push between the two organisations. There is a power dynamic between corporations and countries. And as we as we as we progress through the next ten years, I can see that we're either going we're going to have a big dynamic between for calls to break up the big the big corporates because they're too powerful because the countries are scared of them. Ooh. Mm, yeah. There's a whole heap of good stuff there, Matt. It's, you know, the, the, the conversation of, of companies as countries is kicking around. I'm hearing mm. it in my circle of strategists. It's, it's, you know, how big is too big? Where is the tipping point? And even when you then break that down into individual actions, and that kind of resistance. For example, I am not a fan of Alphabet at all. Um, for my own reasons, I will move heaven and earth to avoid the Google suite of products and other associates. And that uh, discipline extends to our good friends at Facebook as well. Um, and, you know, what am I doing? Am I pulling power back? Well, yeah, I am. I'm pulling my data back. I'm pulling my identity back. I'm pulling all sorts of things back because I believe that these organizations have overstepped a line of power and influence. Mm. So, and this is where you're seeing technology companies pop up where they are, you know, their value proposition is look at us. We do not touch your data. We go out of our way not to know. And yes, we understand that's the cash cow, but you will pay for our service. And our value prop is you will pay for us not to rape and pillage your data. And they're getting traction. My computer's full of them. Um, it's it's this it's this anti power pushback to the conversation about companies as countries, mm. and it's starting to get momentum. And you see the same things play out in societies between companies, like uh, citizens and governments. You see the same thing play out between staff and leadership. You know, you, you, mm. it's it's the same dynamics of tension. Where imagine if some of these larger organizations started to decentralize and empower their customers to choose what they could do with their data. That would be the self-correcting kind of environment that you're to you're speaking mm -hmm. about. It's if if but if if these you know, I, God, am I about to say this? You know, is Google the new Soviet Union? I have no idea, but is like it feels like that's that uh, we're going to hold on for, till the death of this because it's our business model and it's who we are as an organization. And yeah, they do good things, and I get it. I'm kind of going to the nth degree of the bell curve of, to make a point here. However, this is a phenomenon that's happening. People genuinely dislike these large organizations. And when you take that down and you look at that from an empowerment perspective, there are some very simple mechanics that large organizations could provide its customers to decentralize that power, to empower things. The, 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 the way 
to empower customers in this example is exactly the same mechanics in relation to empower staff to take up and lead projects. It's exactly a way to empower a child to walk to the end of the block to pick up a, a loaf of bread. It's the same mechanics. It's just that different levels of, again, what were the things? Ambition, self-awareness, and psychological safety seem to be the relationships that will either stop or start this sort of behavior from moving mm. forward. And- I think you're right. And I think the the biggest word that we need to focus on here is the word identity or identification. When you just said it, because I really like, what's the recipe for empowerment, right? The recipe for empowerment is self-awareness. It is definitely psychological safety. And then what's this other thing that is in the space between me saying, you could do this, you know, trust me, or I want to give you something, or like maybe even in the case of Google, come with me, you know, for good, for better or or for worse, right? Neutrally, come with me, store your data with me. If I do store my data with Google, it's because I identify knowingly or not knowingly, or I, I buy into the values, the purpose, you know, the, almost their ambition. So I think this, this, the, the equation of, you know, Power plus character gives you a good citizen. Hmm. So power plus identification with or knowing what the character is or um, what you're getting yourself into, that's what drives empowerment. So, Hmm. you know, I think I would like to drill this ambition piece, this persuasive piece. Hmm. I would like to understand that a little bit better. Why does somebody give power to Google? It's to do with that identification. It's to do with... Uh, and can we just talk about Trump supporters? Trump supporters support Trump independent of changing policies, independent of arguments, independent of repetition. It's all about the values that he represents to his supporters. And... That's the only thing that matters. Nothing else matters. Nothing what he says, nothing what he does matters. He represents the same values and therefore they go with him. They're persuaded to give him power. You can almost align a lot of political dynamics in the same way that people support sports teams. It's okay. it's it's, it's mm-hmm. this blind faith in and blind and faith. and the re, the, the re, oh, it's is it a blind faith no people support their team because they like the colors when i was 3 i picked a football team and i'm like i like them because i like those colors and i now still support that team for better or worse because i like the colors when i was 3 and mm. it's that sort of blind faith it's not blind blind but there's something that attracted me to them in this case liking colors of the team or what i would call at that point in time a point of identity and that's kind of related to what I like. Right? Mm. That's yeah. the point. Yeah, and then mm. and then it's and then, then that's why self awareness, I think, is a critical component mm. to the dynamics In of the a triangle, of empowerment. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, because without that, it be, just becomes blind walking into the distance, mm. uh, doing whatever. If you don't understand your biases and your your relationship with power, whether you're receiving it or giving it, um then, you know, I, I, I think we have, have a bigger problem. Or not, because, again, there are people who are happy to be working these, and that's where ambition t- kicks in. Because without ambition, if we're giving people, if we're empowering people who aren't ambitious, 
theoretically nothing will happen or you'll end up with disgruntled people who will nothing will happen or you'll end up with disgruntled people who will throw the power back in your face because they don't want it because they Mm. never wanted it. And that is kind of the ambition piece. There needs to be a reciprocity agreement to walk into and to assume that role. And that's why I really like this power reveals. It's it's this, um, it almost feels like, you know, again, in a stereotypical kind of business context, it's it's a great disclosure of, is this the right person to put in a mm. high performer or a succession plan? You know, if someone comes along and gives me power, subject to how my behavior changes or my character adopts and it reveals itself, mm. is this someone that we want to, that we want to assume power a powerful mm. position? And again, it's uh, what was the saying? You know, becoming a leader is synonymous with becoming yourself. It's precisely that simple and precisely that difficult, and it's bang on. Because you know, as you get older, you care less, you become more yourself, and you actually start to hit your stride because you're not mm. shackled by the constraints of expectations, whether by power, by parents, by government, by society, by the neighbours, mm. whatever it happens sure. to be. So, yeah, so it's this... I think the ambition component needs to, be, needs to come from somewhere to, for empowerment to really kind of, you know, get Ooh. full stride. You need Ooh. someone to accept it. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I really like this. I'm not completely happy with ambition i'm more uh, happy with ambition when when i ask myself you know what's the definition of amb- ambition it's who am i and who am i becoming and so it's i think it's a to do with identity but also with my future identity and that's when it becomes your definition of ambition Ooh. are you following me yep yep 100% yeah. so it's because my i'm i'm thinking of a bunch of um, disempowered young women that i work with who don't have a taste of power. I cannot ask them what's your ambition because they don't they don't even can't even describe their ambition to me because they've never felt it. But mm. if I can, you know, uh, help them understand who they could become, then then it's a bit more flexible. You know, I can't accept ambition as being there. It's not God-given, mm. but I can help somebody shape an mm. identity of, yes, I am somebody yes i can become somebody yeah, well, with an ambition right absolutely because like i'm looking at some of the notes i made before before we jumped online and ended up with five kind of key kind of capabilities or pillars if you will mm-hmm. for leaders to create an environment where you can empower they are open up decision making build confidence clearly define expectations support risk taking encourage communication mm-hmm. And what you've just displayed there is the build confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I and need I to, say, it's the vision, it's the it's yeah, it, it, it's what starts that journey. Because if I can't see myself in an empowered position, why the hell am I going to take it? Yeah, you would never, you never, never do. I really like this. Um, also, I like those five steps, and I like in the last one, I would uh, almost change the encourage communication to say encourage conflict, conflicts of interest, encourage discussions. Yeah. Well, that's the psychological safety component. Yeah. It's you're you're allowing that to happen, so it's healthy, as opposed to saying I don't agree with you. Uh oh, this is the end of my career. Mm. It's like I don't agree with you. Here is my case. In the spirit of understanding where we're at and what's a better decision, let's knuckle this out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a rare um, quality to observe, though. People that really, you know, relish being challenged, um, and I think it's one of those where. 
you know, if you end up in a, you know, I've been the challenger and the challengee, if you will. And it's never nice going in and saying a statement and being, oh, you know, you feel that you're maybe correct in what you say and, and being able to uh, gracefully walk back from something that you've said is quite a, quite a difficult thing for people to do without feeling that they've lost face. Um, and I think that that's one of the, the things we, we start, start looking at power because actually there is a lot of that, that character and that identity. And if our identity is who we, you know, the mask that we put on when we go to work, then there needs to be a way of being very, uh, well, shall we say of, of separating role and identity quite a lot, um, in, in this, I think, so that you're, you know, you've got the role of who you are when you go to go to work and then you've got your, you know, your core identity separately. Um, but but one of the things that this is that this has sort of made me made me think about is as you you know as you start looking at trying to um, trying to build confidence and the rest of it you can also very easily undermine that confidence and that's easily the way where you can then start creating um, either undermining people or undermining power structures. Um, and so I think when you've got leaders that are threatened, it's very easy to then undermine people that you feel that could potentially become a threat in the future. And that can sometimes be a way of keeping power somewhat centralized and kind of trying to keep a dynamic there. An interesting mm. political plays that I've seen happen in, in past roles. Yeah. And this kind of leads itself towards the methodology of leading from the back. Because if you're leading from the back, pushing people up, that dynamic can't exist. Mm. Because by default, you want other people to stand on your shoulders and do better things, mm. as opposed to suppress them because I am the leader and you're not taking mm. this from me. So that comes back to character again. Mm. So if power reveals, maybe we should really do a bit more due diligence in relation to who we crown the CEO or the king. Mm. But, that, um, you know, oh, sorry, it's uh, a uh, thanks. Hold your thought, Matt. Um, I was just, uh, just, uh, I just wanted to add. As you were speaking, Matt, I was thinking, which team have I worked on where it was, you know, where power was shared, where I was feeling empowered, and how much did I learn, and how much did we generate? It was always the most productive, most interesting, and and most, you know, satisfying project that I've worked in where power was shared. When power was not shared, we didn't learn as much, we made mistakes, we made the same bloody mistakes again. And so this is what happens when power gets shared. The learning is phenomenally, exponentially more, more bigger and the productivity is bigger. Wouldn't you guys agree? Compare the, the projects you've worked on where empowerment yeah. was there as opposed to where power was rigid. What did you learn doing those projects? Matt, did you, what did you want to say? No, I was just going to say that we, um, you know, I just wanted to come back to that power of fields. And, and something else that came to mind is that people say that we get the leaders we deserve. <laughs> and, you know, you mentioned Trump earlier. People, for whatever, um, for right or wrong, follow him and his, uh, his cult of self, if you will. Um, you've seen similar things in the UK, you know, with... Essentially, uh, it's it feels to me that the politics, in particular, maybe more so than the the corporate world, um, lends itself to the type of person that would be 
overly ambitious for a certain type of power. And then once they get to a certain level of power, that power reveals their character and probably explains why there are fewer leaders that we really consider to be truly great of countries mm. than we would than we probably would like to be able to think of you know if we yeah. look at most most british prime ministers most us presidents a lot of them we can quite easily shoot down for not being truly great and even the ones that hold mystical power and let's go to churchill can be shot down because some of his views from yep. you know from you know 50 70 years ago don't match up now with the values that we would want somebody to espouse and so because they had different values in some things and you know thankfully you know culture has grown and learned but but that's over time right but but i think we do yeah. see this that it's very hard to find great leaders that, that yeah. stand the test of time yeah the, the, the you make an interesting point the perception of power changes over time to your Churchill example. And a great example, I was in Johannesburg a couple of years ago uh, at a conference full of executives and I made the comment, almost to your point, Matt, um, countries get the leaders they deserve. This is when Zuma was in power. I never had so many paper cups lunge in my direction at once in my entire life. <laughs> Everyone's just like, you prick. And I'm just like, well, why is that the case? You've got someone who back in the day many years earlier may well have been the leader that the country needed or deserved, but then refused to relinquish power. And then you end up with this tension. Then someone like me from London flies in and be like, yeah, you get the leader you deserve. And everyone's like, you're a scumbag. <laughs> Fuck off. Like, you know, no one wanted to hear it. So, you know, you, you, it's, it's the time application of power and being empowered. It is not to your point earlier, you was a hander of the baton and it just carries forward. What the baton is will change. Mm. Churchill's application of some of his policies today would go down like a lead balloon. Whether they were right or wrong, that's in the history books and what is done is done. However, people learn. Again, I keep coming back to this. It's the self-awareness element. It's if I become empower to a position of power today based on a particular mandate or capabilities or circumstances you know th this moment is not a state of permanence things will change i mm. will change the expectations of what power delivers will change mm. and i need to be self-aware enough to be able either to adapt or relinquish yuta i think this is really interesting and i think the self-awareness we could make it a little bit more specific for this topic self-awareness that you know that it's not permanent and that should be really hopeful if we could get ourselves and other people to really buy into this notion that everything always changes as Ellen Langer says wouldn't it be much easier to accept that we might not see the full picture right now or that a leader that we are with doesn't have all the answers that leadership is something that should be more shared, that, you know, things can change tomorrow. Let's look at what we could do differently tomorrow. Wouldn't that be a good future to be, to lead from the back, to say, I don't have to know all the answers? 
If I get it wrong, I'm not the only one who's responsible. Uh, uh, Ellen Gilbert recently listened to Ellen Gilbert, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, uh, the, the author of Eat, Pray, Love. She said in her in her craft of writing, she just keeps on writing because it's who she is. And because she believes that this process of creation is not just her responsibility. She says she doesn't have to swallow the sun. Isn't that such a great idea that she's not solely responsible for creating excellence. Um, she doesn't have to have all the answers. So she calls that swallowing the sun. She doesn't have to swallow the sun. She just has to show up to do the work. And isn't it the same with leadership and with understanding and sharing and giving power or empowering others? We don't have oh. to have it worked out. So what I wanted to say, super long-winded, sorry, is no. self-awareness about it's not going to be permanent anyway. Yeah. It's going to change tomorrow anyway. Relax. Right, yeah. Adam? Yeah, the acceptance. And it's also the perception of what I expect power to be. Right. Or to be empowered. Because then there needs to be a reconciliation. You know, I'm going to be powerful and all these wonderful things are going to happen. And they never it's do. It's change and, anyway. You know, yeah. Things change. And, and again, it's because if, and maybe this is where you get this kind of, um, kind of, what is it, this Oedipus complex where if I have a perception of power, I arrive in a position of power. My perception of power is not met. Therefore, I have failed in my position of power. I will hold on mm -hmm. to my power until my perception is realized 10 years, yeah. 20 years, 30 years. And then suddenly you have a country or an organization or a family screaming blue murder yeah. because there is a delta between what I think power means and what I have done with my power, and until I achieve that, I will fight it, or I'll achieve it and think, oh, I can do a bit more. Like, uh, oh, who was the prime minister, the president of Zimbabwe? Zoom. Oh my uh, god, uh, Robert Mugabe. Mugabe. Yes. Yeah, brilliant. Just keep moving at the goalposts. Yeah, a bit more. <laughs> yeah, a bit more. Yeah, a bit more. And you're just like, okay, champ. Um, but again, it's it's this dynamic that. It the character reveals, mm -hmm. you know, it, it reveals the character, but the character also evolves. Yes. And then if the power is revealing the character and the character is feeding more power, then you end up with these lifetime leaders for better and or for worse. That, that, that's mm -hmm. a different conversation that may not necessarily be uh, the right application of power, period. This is a brilliant conversation. And I think if we start to bring this into land about from a tangible perspective, like what does it mean? What do you have to do to successfully empower others? What I've taken away from this is a couple of things. I've got my little notes here and most of them are one-liners. Um, power resists influence. Power reveals the ambition, self-awareness and... Um, psychological safety like these are i feel are fundamental pillars as kind of you know constructs that you need to be aware of if you're successfully going to empower others to succeed and to help you succeed because you're not empowering someone to work against you unless you've got something else going on the second component and I just want to kind of restate were those five pillars for empowering that I kind of I, I, that I came across earlier. 
the open up decision making, like clarify you know, what a good decision actually looks like and where that accountability sits. Build confidence. You're to, to your point, how do you have these people see that vision of themselves that they can assume that role? Do they want to assume it? Clearly define expectations. So you know, it's, it's not, you know, you're not letting go of the lead and they're going berserk. There needs to be constraints. And as they assume power and they are empowered, they will reveal the character. And then it's up to the person providing the power to work out whether they're the right person to give them more. Support risk-taking, which is, you know, there is always a part of, a part of failure. They're not always going to make the same decisions you made. That's the psychological safety component. And again, I really quite like the encourage communication, but I also like how you, you built on it, the encourage conflict. Uh, it's, it's, it's having that safe place to debate and get to the bottom of what is the right decision for the circumstances as opposed to who is making it being more important. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, just to build off your last point there, because um, I, I agree and I haven't got a huge host to add, but I think when you talk about allow... Um, you know, allow conflict. I think it's really about allowing challenge mm -hmm. and allowing the challenge of the person that has currently yes. holding the baton. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not about for me. It's not necessarily we you know, we talk about conflict, and I know we've dug into conflict. And for me, this isn't a you know conflict isn't about banging heads together in this instance, but it's about having that creative conflict where you're actually able to take two opposing sides and have a proper debate about what is the right thing to do. You can't ever have that conversation without allowing an element of challenge, and I think that's the diff. That that for me is a, un, you know is is really the crux of it is allowing people to to challenge both the chair and the person that's sitting in it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think if you if you allow somebody to challenge the chair and the sitting in it, you've empowered them. But of course, you're not necessarily you know that 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 empowers somebody, and of course, everything else you've just mentioned, Adam creates an environment that, that, that allows that to happen. Mm -hmm. I like that. And I, um, building on what you've said, Matt, I'd like to say that like for me, the bad news about power is that power begets power. And so once it's drilled into a system, just like a raw plug, it's difficult to pull it out again. So it resists mm. um, being handed over or, or being shared. But the good news that I think um, we've brought out, and I think Matt, you in particular have have invited us to consider, is to you called it like building power structures, building flexible structures of power, where you can almost invite people to explore what it looks and feels like to have different almost coats of of power, to wear a different role, to wear a different to have more authority to have more responsibility and to make it flexible so that so almost see power as a structure that fills like water between us fills the mm. the space between us and that we can tap into as opposed to it in it being a rigid thing that we have to understand and then map it's something that changes and that's that's cool that's optimistic mm. that we can change it yeah I like it. Excellent. Absolutely. The strategy behind empowerment. This is great. The only logical thing you can possibly do now is empower yourself and hit the subscribe button and listen to <laughs> us more on other, on, on, on other sessions. <laughs> Go on. You want it. You know you want it. <laughs>
Cox is a trusted strategic advisor to leaders, executives and organisations across the globe. Dr Yuta Tobias Mortlock is a social psychologist who researches and advises on how to help people at work be and do well. Dr Matt Wilkinson is a marketing strategist and educator who helps life science and tech companies bring disruptive products and brands to market. If you're interested in the presenter's work or wish to sign up for their newsletters, go to thestrategybehind.com. The Strategy Behind is an original podcast produced and engineered by Santiago Castello. Music is composed by Judson Lee. And to find more episodes, visit thestrategybehind.com forward slash podcast. Thank you.